want to welcome all of our listeners to the 23rd episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with real operators and leaders in digital media. Today, joining us is Desiree Tunstall, faculty member at General Assembly and president of the Tunstall Foundation. Let's jump in and get to know Desiree. Desiree, welcome. How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you very much. Thank you both for having me today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, we're, we're excited to, to, to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, about what you're doing for a living right now. What I'm doing for a living. So I do two things for a living. One of those things pays me and the other thing fulfills me. So <laughs> the, the thing that I do that pays me is I am a faculty member for General Assembly and I teach digital marketing classes and I teach mostly in their international locations. And so as a result of that, I have been to Saudi Arabia a number of times in the last 12 months teaching there. Wow, that's amazing. Before you started doing that, tell us a little bit about your background, your culture, identity. Sure. So in in terms of my professional background, I started my career, well, first I went to the University of Pennsylvania, where I majored in history and religious studies. And when I graduated, or just before graduation even, I was confident that I was going to earn a PhD in history, and I was going to go into teaching. But somewhere late into my senior year, just as I was graduating, I realized that I needed something faster paced. And I decided to go into politics. Mm. And so I started working in politics and I worked for the second Bush administration. So G.W. Bush. And I also worked on Capitol Hill and I worked for political nonprofits out of Connecticut. So I had a, a few different stints in politics. And I realized while the work was interesting and fast paced, it didn't pay well. And mm-hmm. I decided that it was time to make a transition. I mean, it was a very practical transition. I decided to make a transition into the corporate world. And I started working for a marketing technology company out of Virginia, which is where I'm from. And that is kind of what started my career in the MarTech ad tech space. And from there, uh, I worked there for a number of years where I led the customer relationship management team. I had an account management team. I had a sales team. So I did a, a bit of everything relating to our customer relationships. And then after that, I started working at AppNexus, doing similar kinds of work, but strictly in the ad tech space. And, you know, as my career progressed, you know, I got promotions. I was the director. I transitioned from AppNexus. I became the vice president and general manager of uh, Fibers North America business. So I started working at Fiber and I did that for a few years. And I left there in late 2018 and transitioned to working on a pretty significant passion project and also teaching for General Assembly. So I've been doing that for one year, my passion project slash General Assembly. That's pretty cool. Tell us what it was like, you know, sort of growing up in Virginia and, you know, how was growing up in in your family? So my, my father was in the army for 30 years and we actually moved around a lot. You know, I tell people I'm from Virginia, but that's because that's the easiest thing to say because I'm, I'm from I feel the the closest to Virginia, but when I say we moved every one to two years, I mean we moved every one to two years. I last time my brother and I counted, I think I've had fourteen moves under my belt. Wow. I was born in Germany. We lived in Korea. Most of the time, we lived on military bases. Sometimes we lived in the surrounding community. 
We've lived in North Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, Alabama, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania. I mean, mm. it's a, it's a list. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I mean, because you've moved around so much, you've experienced probably a lot of different cultures. Yes. Uh, uh, a lot of different types of people. Yes. Right. How how has that experience of moving around sort of helped shape not only who you are, but sort of your your outlook on life and your perspective as well? I think that being a military child is probably one of the the most important shaping shaping things in my life mm -hmm. in, in terms of in terms of what is what has happened in your life to make you who you are. I would certainly put being a military child at the at the top of that list. Mm -hmm. My parents are up there for sure, but but it's that experience because to your point I had a lot of exposure to many different types of people at a very young age and not only just interactions with them in passing, but meaningful interactions with them. Sitting in classrooms together, they were my next door neighbors. We went to church together. So I grew up in an incredibly diverse environment mm -hmm. and that enabled me to see the world from a worldly perspective. The, mm -hmm. the world didn't feel so big because I was able to connect with so many people from different places. Gotcha. Gotcha. So one of the most interesting things that I like that you're doing that I'm hoping you're open to talking about is uh, my black birthright. Right? Yes. And, and some of the work that you're doing there in terms of bringing African-American kids to Africa and exposing them to their ancestry homeland. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that is the passion project, yeah. right? So I, I, I keep leading on this, you know, I have a passion project. Well, that's what it is. I, in, in early 2019, my brother and I established our family as a foundation. Mm -hmm. So we set up a family foundation called the Tunstall Foundation. And the Tunstall Foundation does two things right now. And, and in the future, we will do more things. But right now, we've got two things on our plate. One is that we build schools in African countries. Mm -hmm. And so far, we've built three schools. We've built two in Senegal, one in 2017, one in 2018. And we broke ground on our third school in Malawi in 2019. So mm -hmm. just this past December, I was in Malawi. Um, so that's one part of the work that we do. The other part is Black Birthright. And the premise of that program is that we take Black American high school students to African countries. And the purpose of the trip is so that they can learn about their history, experience the continent's culture, and we hope develop a stronger sense of self and purpose. Mm. And we took our first cohort of students in July of 2019. So that was the first year we did the program. Mm -hmm. We're going to take another trip in July 2020. We took the students to Senegal last year. We will return to Senegal this year, but every year we won't go to the same country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just have a we have a bit of a familiarity and a foundation in Senegal and we just gotcha. kind of want to build on that right now, but uh, we will continue traveling and exploring other countries. So I I I think both of the things that you're doing the schools as well as Black birthright is super important and and interesting. So I want to kind of split them up and talk about both of them. Sure. Um, so with the with the schools that you're building, talk a little bit about like what are what are the goals for doing that? Why have you taken on sort of building schools uh, in Africa? So the the reason why we decided to focus on schools is because education has been a huge part of our family. So my mother is an educator. My father is incredibly educated. And they 
were both extremely focused on making sure that my brother and I achieved a high level of education and that we received a quality education, Mm -hmm. no matter where we moved. Every time we moved, the first priority that my mother would have when we got someplace is to figure out where are we sending these kids to school. Mm -hmm. And in some circumstances, Mm -hmm. we could, we went to public school because the public school system, you know, was well-resourced and we could get a good education there. And in some cases, that, that wasn't how things were. And so we went to private schools in those instances. And my parents made a number of, of personal sacrifices, financial sacrifices, in order to make sure that we achieved a high level of education. Mm-hmm. My mother grew up in Southern Virginia and in what we would call abject poverty. She grew up in a house that had no running water mm. and there was no toilet in the household. They used an outhouse. And she credits the fact that she took her education seriously for the reason why she was able to transition her life into something different for herself. Mm -hmm. And my father feels similarly about his background. He grew up slightly more privileged than my mother, but, Mm -hmm. but we're not taught. I mean, it's not a huge difference. Right. And, and so they, they really feel that their education helped propel them. And so they instill that into my brother and me. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, you know, just statistically speaking, what are some of the most significant things you can do in a community to grow and improve that community? Educating its citizens Mm -hmm. is at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to focus our efforts on young people and on schools. When we build schools in Africa, we are not going into communities and and putting something there that the people who live there did not ask for. I mean, so much of advocacy, solid advocacy is working with people to provide them with what they what they know they need and mm-hmm. what they are requesting. Mm-hmm. So these students are already attending school, meaning that they have classes, they've got instructors, they just so happen to be doing so under a tree, mm-hmm. or they may be doing so in a shed. And we are providing them just with the physical infrastructure so that they can better facilitate the learning experience. Mm-hmm. And Also, by providing these facilities, it means that fewer students have to travel long distances from home because when they have to travel long distances from home for school, the dropout rate is high. And when, and I'm not referring to high school dropouts, I'm talking about the equivalent of third, fourth, and fifth grade dropouts, Mm. right? So if you've got a school that is adequately supported in your community, you are more likely to attend, you know, and and finish your primary education at the very least. Gotcha. gotcha. So that's why we decide to focus there. Awesome. And then uh, My Black Birthright, why is that important for African-American high school kids to go to Africa? We do it for the culture. (laughs) (laughs) We do do it for the culture. I mean, it's, I firmly believe that in order for you to make change in your own community Mm -hmm. and and to and to feel empowered to make change in your community you have to have an understanding of your history right so how how did my community come to look like it looks today why am i living in this space why is my family structured this way why do these opportunities exist for me why do these opportunities not exist for me how did people who look like me get in this place mm-hmm. and that understanding provides a level of context that enables young people to feel empowered to make change because you cannot make change for things that you do not understand right right and and so much of the primary and secondary 
education experience in the United States specifically when it comes to black history is incredibly limited. I don't know what your schooling experience was like, but despite the fact that I went to some great schools, most of what I learned about black history, I learned at home and I learned independently outside of the classroom. Of course, you know, come February, somebody would toss out a few lessons here or there for Black History Month. But in terms of a deep and intimate understanding of the 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 struggle and the resistance and the and the power of black people, the the realness, the the the, the real, real, realness, it just was not there. And especially when you look at Black history as it predates slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of, of the narrative begins with slavery. And right. so it begins from a, from a place of oppression, which we know very well there was a long legacy prior right, to that. Right. I spent so much time in school learning about Greek civilizations and about the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, someone would talk about what was going on in Asia, but it was almost like Africa had no civilizations. Mm-hmm. There was nothing happening there until you know, Western European countries moved into that space, colonized, and then started sending people to the Americas. Right. And that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. And and we want young Black Americans to know that. And we want them to understand that history. We also want them to understand what modern Africa is all about, mm-hmm. right? That mainstream narrative of war and poverty. Yeah, Those things exist on the continent for sure. There are wars. There is poverty. But that is a narrow that is a narrow perspective mm. that doesn't articulate the vibrancy of what is happening in Africa. Mm-hmm. And honestly, when I travel, I see so many other cultures on the continent mm-hmm. capitalizing on what's happening on the continent right now, even just from an economic perspective. Yeah. When I went to Malawi and I had a layover in the, De- the Democratic Republic of Congo, there were so many Chinese people getting on and off that plane, mm-hmm. more than people from the Congo. Yes, yeah. getting on and off that plane because there are business opportunities. There's there is something happening on the continent right now. Mm-hmm. And I want black Americans to be aware of it. And I want them, more importantly, to be participants in it. Are, are the kids pleasantly surprised when they get to Africa and start to learn the sort of the continent, if you will? They are. They are. You know, I, I ask them about every day we do reflection. Mm-hmm. activity and I asked them about their perceptions and there have definitely been there's been some consistency around you know I'm surprised that there's so many buildings here mm. I'm surprised that you know the the city looks because we were in um we were in Dakar gotcha, in, in okay. Senegal okay. you know I'm surprised that the city looks the way it looks I'm surprised that you know that the people were so friendly and that they were so welcoming yeah so those are definitely some of the perceptions that they have you know or even just seeing wealthy people yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, does there a sense of pride about where their ancestors come from? Does it change? Do, do you see that happening? Do you see a, a change in the in the kids in terms of their perspective before and after the trip? There is. So we ask the students, you know, before we travel, we have some, some pre-work leading up to the trip, mm-hmm. you know, just so that they have some context about what they're going to see and what they're going to do when they get there. But once we arrive, there's nothing like when you step foot off that plane for the first time and you kind of take in that air and have that experience. Mm -hmm. And the students have have been consistent in telling me that they feel a deep pride and appreciation in in being Black. And they feel good about about their culture and where they come from. So if, if there is a parent that's listening right now that wants to get their kid involved, if there is someone that's listening that wants to support the organization in any way, 
shape or form, wh- where where do they go? How can they get in touch? Sure. So there are two things you can do. The first is you can visit myblackbirthright.org, myblackbirthright.org. And when you get there, you will find out all kinds of program information. We've got videos uh, from the 2019 trip. We've got photos from that trip. We also have the application and the criteria for 2020. There's information about safety and risk management because we think about all of those things. Mm-hmm. And if there's anyone who has any questions, there's a contact us section. Mm-hmm. I actually read those. I mean, that doesn't go into a black hole. Yeah. I, I take those. <laughs> I, I respond to all of that communication myself. And we also have an Instagram which is at Black Birthright. And so you can also DM us there. Which I follow and I, I enjoy the photos that go up there. So Thank you very much. Yeah, welcome. So you have sort of walked us through your professional career and your passion, everything from politics to the corporate world to what you're doing with your foundation. Is there one accomplishment in your career so far that sticks out that you're most proud of? I think there, I'm, I'm going to give you two. Okay. If that's okay. That is, if that's that, okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So when I was working for these marketing technology and advertising technology companies, I was often in a position to do hiring. Mm-hmm. Right? And, mm-hmm. and I was in a position where I was vetting candidates. I participated in a lot of interview processes. And I was also the hiring manager for many roles. I would say one of the things that I am proud of is that I learned to not be afraid to have uncomfortable conversations with my colleagues about some of the things that we were doing around hiring that I didn't necessarily feel served our organization well. And those uncomfortable conversations fortunately allowed us to have more diversity in our workspaces. Mm, mm. Yeah. So that's one thing. Desiree, tell us a little bit about your experiences, you know, in in the industry with how maybe the industry can improve, you know, inclusiveness and and how you see it changing. I think one of the things that's encouraging to an extent, but, but also frustrating to an extent, is there's so many conversations right now about diversity and inclusion, and there's so many panels and I'm curious to see if that actually manifests itself into real action, because I I feel to a certain extent that people complicate this thing to a point that it doesn't need to be that complicated. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, if, Hmm. if you have an interest in having a diverse pool of candidates, you cannot go to all of your existing employees who look the same and ask them to refer their friends. It, It does not work. It does not work. You are going to have to do a little bit more work and put some elbow grease into finding different types of people. Mm-hmm. When it's time to go to colleges and recruit, you cannot continue going to the same universities that you've always gone to yeah. that have the kind of same demographic of people who historically have come to your organization. Right. You've got to branch out. And even beyond that, even when you do go to some of those universities. Like, for example, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. It's a predominantly white institution. But one of the things that I noticed when companies would come is they did not spend time talking to the minority groups on campus, encouraging them to get minorities to come to some of these industries that 
you know, your your parents likely didn't work in ad tech. You don't have aunts and uncles and so forth who work in ad tech. It's not right. it's not an industry that is particularly well known. And so as an industry, the responsibility is on us to do that outreach to explain to people this is what this industry is about. This is the kind of money you can earn here. This is how you can grow in your career here. And we create and and encourage an environment of diversity. So I think that you know, really, like truly, as, as cliche as it sounds, truly stepping out of the box. And you, you can't keep doing the same stuff you've right. always done right. and expect that diversity will just magically happen. Yeah, it, it just does not work like that. And also using things like the, the coded language of culture fit has to stop. Mm. You know, so-and-so doesn't have the right DNA. I, I feel like that needs to be thrown out of yeah. the room because, uh. because that at this point, I, I can certainly understand where that started mm-hmm, and where people mm-hmm. where people were going with mm-hmm, that, maybe mm-hmm. if they had good intentions around that. Mm-hmm. But what that has evolved into is this catch-all for, I don't like the way this person looks or makes me feel, or I'm not aligned with their background. I'm not completely comfortable with them. Therefore, they're not a good culture fit. Yeah. And so then when it's time to argue that in the room, you don't, you can't really argue that. Right. Right. You know, well, mm. what do you mean by culture? Well, I just don't think they're going to fit in with our DNA. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. What are you talking yeah. about right now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so I think that's that's another thing that that we have to get out of the room. We have to be very specific about what we're saying mm-hmm. as we're evaluating these candidates and why we are saying. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what excites you most about the future of our industry? The thing that is exciting about the future of our industry, I would say that. I'm continually encouraged around the innovation in terms of the technology. Mm-hmm. I decided to transition into the corporate world because I wanted to get paid. But <laughs> there were there were lots of different types of corporate opportunities I could have pursued. But I chose technology because technology represents possibility, right? So you take a group of talented engineers and you put them in a space and you say, this is a technical problem we have. You give them the resources to solve it. They can come up with some sort of solution mm-hmm. for it. And I think that, that that set of possibilities always makes technology and specifically this industry very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And And speaking of that, right? Like, so you've got your corporate life, you've got what you do for the foundation, you have your your personal life. How do you balance it all? What does work-life balance look like for you? Is there even a such thing as work-life balance? So work-life balance for me is not, um, you know, it, it's, it doesn't actually matter as much as it used to. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. When I was doing jobs, that I didn't necessarily, where I was working companies and I didn't necessarily love what I was doing, I always felt the need to have a lot of work-life balance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, w- okay. I, I needed, you know, I, I needed time to, to set aside for certain things and to find opportunities, you know, for myself to take a break from what I was doing. But once I started transitioning into doing more of, of what I personally enjoy, it just wasn't as relevant anymore. Mm. Mm. I mean, you know, I I certainly take time to do to do things with family, with friends. But but the work has started to just blend in in a way that I I don't mind. Right. I don't mind. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think we all have one life. Right. Right. And we should all decide how we want to spend our time. Right. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I want to talk a little bit about mentors because I want to understand from your perspective, 
Do you have mentors? And if so, what are some of the characteristics that make up a good mentor for you? So yes, I do. I do have mentors. Some of my mentors, I actually know in real life and some of them I know in my head, mm. right? So I've got, I've got <laughs> some of those mentors. My real life mentors, I have one in the industry who, who actually works for an agency. I have one who, who I used to work for in politics. Mm-hmm. And then I look at my father very much as a mentor, although I don't know that he knows that he has he has been assigned that role, but I look at him very much in that way. Yeah. And what I look for in mentors are people who walk the walk, like or walk the talk, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah whatever yeah, that phrase yeah, is, basically. Yeah. Basically, in the sense that they embody what they articulate mm-hmm. is important to them. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. so for example, if you're working for someone and they tell you that it is a people-oriented culture and they care very much about the team, yet they are engaging in behaviors that are not designed to support the team or to be, you know, thoughtful about the people who work for them. That for me is that level of inconsistency doesn't necessarily work for me. So I am I gravitate very closely to people mm-hmm. who I find are consistent in that respect. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And and also people who who tend to be optimistic. Not unnecessarily so, not foolishly so, right, right, right. but but realistic mm-hmm. with a bias towards optimism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that. I like yeah. that. Desiree, where, where do you draw inspiration from? I draw inspiration from so many different places. I really draw inspiration from anybody who is doing something. Mm. Anyone who has an idea and decides to get up and do and something, do yes, and do something about that idea and put that idea to paper or, you know, whatever, whatever that is, and then persist at that idea and mm. just kind of keep grinding at it and growing with it, whatever it may be. Yeah. I really draw in- inspiration from those types of people and, and people who, who persevere in the face of, of frustrations or who have challenges and who are open about those types of challenges. Would that be the advice of if there's anyone that's listening that is just getting into their professional life, just starting out in their career, or maybe wants to try something new, would that be the advice you would give them? Or is there other advice you'd give as well? I mean, the the only advice that I, I would give someone is to just give yourself a chance to do what it is that interests you. You don't necessarily know how it's going to work out mm-hmm. before you do it. Yeah. You can do all kinds of planning. I mean, there's there's plenty of opportunities to plan. There's plenty of courses that you can take. There's plenty of books that you can read. Right. And you can prepare yourself as well as a human being could possibly be prepared. But you will not know until you just give yourself, yeah, just give yourself a chance and and give yourself a legitimate chance. Try and, you know, and, and persist at it. Right. One of the things that, that I have personally realized in starting endeavors, because I, for a period of time, also started a business in the ad tech space and that business failed. And one of the things that was difficult then, and is also difficult now in terms of getting this foundation off the ground is when you're doing something new, you're in this desert Mm. where you're working and you don't necessarily know if this is actually going to turn into anything, right? right? Is this going to just be a small pet project? Mm -hmm. Does this have the potential to turn into the massive, you know, vision that you have for yourself? You may not be getting a lot of feedback. The support base may be small, but just to keep pushing through, but especially during that period, Mm -hmm. because I think that on the other side of that period, 
is the breakthrough. Gotcha. And and that's a really tough period to get through. Yeah. And that's uh-huh. why that business that I had previously failed because we we did not get through that mm. that breakthrough period. Well, it didn't it didn't fail totally because you learned something from it. So well, absolutely, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I I have a fun question that I like to ask every guest that we have on okay. the show, which is. On your phone, which you have with you all the time. I'm sure it's one of your main tools of communication. It sure it is. It has your, probably your whole life on it. Yes. Um, give me the top three apps that you use, but you can't name email or calendar. Email. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I, I use WhatsApp a fair amount because yeah. I travel quite a bit. I mean, I know that's kind of dry, but I no, use WhatsApp. Yeah, fair. Um, <laughs> I am. I use the Economist app Okay. quite a bit. All I right. read the Economist. Um I sound really boring. Um, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And, no and I also I also use Spotify a lot. Yes, all right, all Spotify. Right. I would pay. I mean, you don't don't tell anybody who works at Spotify, but I would pay two to three times as much per month for Spotify as I actually pay really? for Spotify. I wow. feel like Spotify is a highly underpriced. Wow. wow. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a fantastic. I mean, every every song you could want. Yeah, that's I true. I mean, come on. Like, yeah, that's, that's true. And, <laughs> every, and podcast. This podcast is on Spotify. Too. Exactly. Every <laughs> song right. you could want, all, you know, the huge catalog of podcasts, yeah, speeches. Yeah. I mean, you name it. So, yeah. All right. Those are my three The Economist, Spotify, and WhatsApp. There you go. Well, thanks for joining us today. A lot of our listeners like to continue the conversation or connect with our guests. Where and how can our listeners continue the conversation with you? Sure. You can follow Black Birthright on Instagram at Black Birthright. Or if you'd like to follow me personally, me, myself personally, <laughs> on on Instagram, I am at Desiree Tunstall. So just my full name, Desiree Tunstall on Instagram. Desiree, thanks for joining us. It's been great. Thank you all of our listeners for joining us for another episode. Uh, you can find us where you find all of your audio. Thanks. Thanks.